0: Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the virtual CISA Moment Wrap-Up for Friday, October 7th, 2022. We start today with a public service announcement from the FBI and CISA: Foreign actors likely to use information manipulation tactics for the 2022 midterm elections. The announcement goes on to say that the FBI and CISA are raising awarenesses that the potential threat posed by attempts to manipulate information or spread disinformation in the lead up to and after the 2022 midterm elections, which, of course, is in one month. Foreign actors may intensify efforts to influence outcomes of the 2022 midterm elections by circulating or amplifying reports of real and alleged Malicious cyber activity on election infrastructure, and they say, for example, foreign actors may use such platforms to spread disinformation and claim successful cyber compromises of election infrastructure, evidenced by hacked or leaked U.S. voter registration data, suggesting a compromise to the voting process or election result integrity they do have a list of recommendations one is very familiar to us and that's be cautious with websites not affiliated with local or state government that solicits voting information like voter registration information websites that end in .gov or websites you know are affiliated with your state or local election office are, are usually trustworthy be sure to know what your state and local elections office websites are in advance to avoid inadvertently providing your information to nefarious websites or actors and so i'll build on that a little bit, that obviously one of the big methodologies of phishing campaigns out there that are successful is to hook on to whatever are the current events of the day. The election is going to be a rather significant one followed here in the United States, so be cautious about all of that. From Bleeping Computer, the U.S. government on October 4th released an alert about state-backed hackers using a custom covalent stealer malware and the Impacket framework to steal sensitive data from a U.S. organization in the defense industrial-based sector. This compromise apparently lasted for 10 months. Uh, It's likely that multiple advanced persistent threat groups are likely involved with this, and some gained initial access through a Microsoft Exchange server in January of last year. The article goes on to say that the U.S. government doesn't have an indication of the origin of the threat actors, but notes that CISA uncovered that likely multiple APT groups compromised the organization's network. And a set of recommendations are available in a joint report that was issued by the FBI and CISA, and a link to that is in the article itself. Here's an interesting one that seems to be a little bit controversial at times, and this is, is mandatory password expiration helping or hurting your password security? Now, you're probably aware that there's been a shift in the industry and in standards that instead of asking for uh, as best practice or requiring passwords be changed, say, every 90 days. The guidance is more about creating very complex passwords. Part of the reason for not recommending changing the passwords is that people would use transformations such as replacing a character with a symbol, like a dollar sign instead of the letter S, or incrementing a number to the end of the password. I will admit that in the past, I was guilty of that myself. But the reason why I wanted to share this article is that there's something interesting that that I kind of like this concept. I don't know how easy it is to implement in reality, but they describe it as length-based password aging to the rescue. And basically what it is, is that the more complex your password is in length and in complexity, the stronger it is, I guess I should say, the less Frequently, you will have to change your password. So if you're just doing the bare minimum, then which might be like eight and upper lower case number and special symbol, then you might have to change every 90 days. But if you're using a password manager and your password is 100 characters long of randomly generated stuff, then you might not have to change that for a couple of years, something like that. It's an interesting approach. And I like the idea of thinking outside of the box, to solve something on both counts, to increase security and also decrease user friction. From CSO Online is an interesting summary, if you will, about cyber insurance, where it's at today, some of the issues that have occurred in cyber insurance, and going forward, some pieces of advice, a couple of high-level things. Well, first of all, typically the insurance policy will cover some of these particular items losses relating from business interruption, uh, contingent business interruption, digital asset destruction, data retrieval and system restoration costs, system failure, cyber extortion or ransomware, breach response and remediation expenses and social engineering and cybercrime and network security and privacy liability. The article goes on to note in a little bit more detail about how the market is going through a state of flux because more so than anything with regards to ransomware, they are, they are employing, the actors are employing craftier and more sophisticated methods, quote from the article, to extort businesses for potentially huge sums of money. Now, in 2021, breach response costs increased from 29% to 52% of overall claim costs. So insurers are raising the rates and standards for the risks that they're willing to cover. Obviously, they, they need to do that in order to stay in business themselves. And remember, we talked about this a little bit while ago on the podcast about how in August, uh, Lloyds of London announced that it is set to introduce cyber insurance exclusions for coverage to catastrophic state-backed account attacks from 20, from 20, starting in 2023. And this is really needing to understand what they mean by state-backed attacks. So there's a lot more detail in this article, including how to assess your cybersecurity needs. This is something that I think everybody needs to keep up with on an annual basis because the field is changing. The threat environment as well is changing rapidly. And finally, from the Hacker News, a U.S. federal court jury has found former Uber chief security officer Joseph Sullivan guilty of not disclosing a 2016 breach of customer and driver records to regulators and attempting to cover up the incident, Sullivan According to the article, he's been convicted on two counts, one for obstructing justice by not reporting the incident and another for misprison. He faces a maximum of five years in prison for the obstruction charge and a maximum of three years for the latter. The complaint is also in the show notes. There's been a lot of discussion about this incident and the role of the CISO and ethics. And I'll have some additional thoughts on Ethics, both with this and another incident that happened to us in the past week, in 30 seconds. Those of you who have listened to this podcast for some time know that I'm a proponent of pushing ethics and following ethics in the cybersecurity industry. I think that it should be the most important item within our industry. And yet, sometimes that gets pushed aside for a variety of reasons. We are only human. We can give in to temptation. We can be blinded by our goals, or perhaps our goals are not to be ethical. I think in the case of Mr. Sullivan, there's just been a convergence of incidents that are unfortunate. Um, I won't discount the fact that, in my opinion, what he did was wrong, and he violated the law, and that the verdict seemed to be correct from what I've read of the brief that was filed, the complaint, and there's a link to that in the show notes. But the path that he took for that, as I understand the story, is something that any of us who have been or are CISOs can understand. You have a responsibility to your shareholders. You have a responsibility to your customers, you have a responsibility to the board of directors. Obviously, that's all that's all in, in force there. And if you're in a culture which is trying to minimize damage, it can sometimes blind you as to what is right and what is wrong. I'd like to give Mr. Sullivan the benefit of the doubt that somewhere along the line that that happened here. The story is still emerging in a lot of ways and there may be other things that come out, and I'm not trying to pass judgment on anybody here. It's 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 unfortunately a case study um, for those who are CISOs in in all industries now. But I keep on coming back to that it 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 focuses and comes down to understanding ethics and let ethics being your moral guide, even if it's at great cost. And I talk about ethics a lot. There was another. Instance that happened this past week, completely unrelated to this, but as far as with my firm that provides virtual CISO consulting, we happen to notice just by doing a normal update of our marketing areas that on our Google business page, a competitor, and I say that loosely because I don't know if we actually compete in the same markets or have the same mission statement. But anyway, it's one that provides virtual chief information security officer services. The founder of that company posted a question on our Google business site, basically asking why does their company, who I won't name here, why does their company provide the best VC shows out there? In other words, it was a spam on our marketing area. And I had seen this before and I, I, I struggle with the ethics of that. It's, you know, a lot lot of the small firms out there that are trying to provide the virtual CISO services and, and specifically with, with, with us, we're doing it because we have a passion to try to make a difference. This isn't a business competition thing. There's enough work out there and enough qualified people to do the job right this, and and my main goal of the business has never been about growth. It's about service. You've heard me say that many, many times here. If you have a heart of a servant, you will always be successful. And yet I was miffed by this because I don't think that that's ethical. And it reminded me that there are folks out there that do not follow business ethics, at least the way that I define them. And I don't know, perhaps maybe I'm being a little bit too reactive, too overboard about that. But both of those two issues really focus on the bottom line of like, why are you doing something? Are you doing something to help? Or are you doing something for other reasons, selfish reasons, probably in some ways. So in the case of Mr. Sullivan, he was probably quite worried about his future with the company Which, ironically, he ended up getting fired anyway because of another breach, as I understand it. In the case of the other instance, it was more about wanting to build business at whatever cost. I think that we all need to understand that in our field of information security and cybersecurity, we have to keep ethics first and foremost. And it's not just an opinion the CISSP and other certifications, that's a linchpin right there. In both instances, if both are active CISSP's, it's my opinion that that should be revoked. But that's just my opinion. Love to hear your opinion. Uh, That's it for this week. I hope you all have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. And until then, stay secure.